Well, good morning. We're continuing our series on transforming grace this week. And as I was uh, thinking through this and some of the issues surrounding it this week, um, thinking about what transforming grace looks like and just in terms of our present state of our culture, the, the onslaught of current events that many of us would have thought impossible not so long ago. Um, it seems like regular attendance in a church service where the word of God is shared seems almost mandatory for Christians anymore. We need to be bolstered. We need to be reinforced. We need to be encouraged. Um, You know, I've admitted before I'm a bit of a news junkie, so I see lots of stuff and, boy, overwhelming stories about, you know, laptops and COVID cover-ups and bureaucratic control of media. And just this morning... I saw this headline. Woke Christianity, historic London church to host drag queen performance. Now, there's lots of discussion on the interwebs these days about what woke really means. And lots of people are saying, well, the conservatives, you know, the the Republicans, everybody that might be right of center, they've made it mean something that it's not. Um, But woke is as woke does. Uh, it, 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 it has become another version of relativism. There is no truth. It's whatever you define it to be, however you want it to be. Um, and that's how, what we're seeing played out. So the story is that the 340-year-old St. James Church in Piccadilly, London, decided to host this performance of drag, which they are calling Preach. Preach. Exclamation point. So I think it's been pretty clear for some time, anybody paying attention, the Church of England has lost its way, um, and it has for, for some time now, which is why it is so important for us to stay grounded in the Word of God, which is our plan today as we get back into Second Peter. So let's pray before we jump in. Father God, sometimes I wonder... Uh, how long this is going to go on. And I'm sure um, there's nothing new under the sun. This has all been done before in various ways and in various times, and yet it continues to go on. And we wonder, uh, so what's the holdup, Lord? Why isn't Jesus coming back? We're ready. You have to be ready. Um, But the church Christians have been thinking this for 2,000 years. So I pray that as we spend time in your word this morning, Lord, that we find encouragement, we find support, um, and we, we find a, just a, a new desire to live out the life that you've called us to, that we uh, look at this text, uh, especially in these last few weeks in Second in Peter, how we are called not to just have faith, but we start with faith, and then we're called to confirm it through our actions. So, Lord, I pray that you uh, help us find some application for this as we go through the, these verses today. And we pray that um, you continue to find grace and mercy, and we, we know your desire is for every last person to hear the gospel message. Um, and Lord, we pray that that happens quickly. Uh, thank you for our time together here. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we looked at Second Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, and we saw Peter lays out these seven traits or qualities that ought to be present in the life of a true and genuine believer. So these traits are not just present in the life. They're not just, we have them and now we can stay where we are and plateau, but these qualities we are called to continually build up. 
we're called to continue to improve on. We're called to increase through our efforts. Now, this was not intended to be an all-inclusive list. Uh, there are a number of other Bible passages that provide similar lists of traits and qualities that should be present in the life of a believer. And there's some overlap, to be sure, but they're not always the same. <clears throat> in fact, just out of curiosity, I decided to check one of the many translations we have avail available today. And we're not advancing. One of the many translations that we have. Oh, there we go. The holy and approved Google translation. Uh, and, and so I just typed in uh, a list of Christian character traits found in Scripture. Um, just to see what would pop up. And there were thousands and thousands and thousands of articles by various people that included things like 49 godly characteristics, 60 character traits of Christ, 12 characteristics of a true Christian, 36 godly character traits, 49 characters. It seems to be there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of information about what it is we're supposed to do, how it is we're supposed to be. And so I wonder, what, what does this mean? I mean, it, there are all these different lists. Does, does, this, does this mean there are contradictory lists in Scripture? No, I don't think it's that. Does it mean that men can't agree on how to interpret Scripture? Well, yeah, in some places. But no, I don't think that's what this refers to here. Does this abundance of different lists mean that, that we don't understand the purpose of the lists found in various places and written by various men? That seems more likely. That seems like a, like a good explanation. There's a lot that could be said about all of these lists, and none of the ones that I looked at here, and I looked at a number of these, these lists, they're all scripture-based, uh, and all of these lists, none of them included any of the character traits that Jesus referred to in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the weak. They found all kinds of other things, but they didn't include any of those. Now again, none of them are comprehensive. None of these lists cover everything. And I think one of the reasons that we're given so many different lists, these, these traits or, or Christian qualities that we should aspire to, I think it's because it makes, us, makes it really hard for us to focus on a list, which is what we would do. If there was a list of traits and qualities, we would all just focus on that list. And completing that list would actually become more important than the things we're supposed to do on that list. Or, or we'd get depressed at how long the list actually was. Or we'd get caught up in comparing our progress on the list with the other people in our church and how I think we're actually doing better than a lot of the people. We're probably more spiritually aware and enlightened. We may be closer to sainthood than anybody else in the whole group because I'm farther down the list, which would defeat the whole purpose of the list to begin with. So I, I think that the, the number of lists that we can find, traits and character qualities, they're really there just to help us uh, help provide guardrails for us as we live our Christian life. They're, they're to keep us moving forward without getting too far out of, out of bounds. And as I said last week, there were, there were zero items on that list of seven which we can expect to master in this lifetime. None of them will we have perfected before we die. But we can be better at all of them. We can make progress on all of them. So that list of seven we looked at, or, or 
any of the other list of traits and qualities that can be found in Scripture. They're not there to tell us what to do so much as to show us how to be. They're to help us develop our whole Christian character. If we want to be more like Jesus, then we're going to work at displaying these traits. And we'll get better at them over time. And as you get better at this list of seven, oh, I've got a few more over here that you probably ought to consider as well. The, the fruits of the Spirit, perhaps. And as you work on those, oh, look, here's another list over here that you can work on as well. To be more Jesus-like, and he was perfect, right? He was God and man. We'd have to be complete idiots to think that a list of seven Christian traits is comprehensive and all-inclusive. It was not meant to be that. But it's a start. It helps move us in the right direction. And, and those are all general enough in scope to be really helpful in establishing guardrails for us. It included things like, and I'm not going to go through these again because we spent time with them last week. You probably have them memorized by now. I don't know. But the first five, remember, deal with our relationship with God. The last two deal with our relationships with other people, um, specifically fellow believers, but not exclusively. Our, our agape love, that last word there, that's, that's intended to kind of overflow into all of our lives and all the people that we meet and, and interface with. And, and you'll also remember from last week that after sharing these seven traits, Peter said, therefore, be diligent to confirm your calling. Confirm your calling by practicing these qualities. So if you make every effort to grow in these areas, you will not fall away from truth. Is it possible the Church of England has gotten away from practicing these qualities? If you don't make every effort to grow in these areas, he says it's as though you are willingly blind. You choose not to see. You choose not to follow truth. You're rejecting truth. You know the truth, but you're just not going to do anything with it. And the consequences of that can be significant and eternal. He said, but for those who continue to practice and to grow in the Christ-like qualities, you will gain entrance into the eternal kingdom. And that's where we're going to pick up this week in Peter's ongoing argument here, starting in verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them, and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I'll make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. So we get another therefore to start this off. So we know that that means he's building on an argument that came before, the therefore... We ask, what's that there for? It, it, it's, a, it's a concluding statement of all the things that came before. In this case, he's just pointed out the difference between those who have confirmed their faith through actions and those who have not. And the difference, he says, the difference is eternity. Not eternity so much, but where you're going to spend eternity. For those who practice, for those who continue to grow in Christ-likeness, he said that's, that's confirmation of your faith and you will gain entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which means, by implication, that those who do not continue to practice and grow in Christ-likeness, those whose faith, therefore, is not genuine, they're, they're willingly blind to this required process, they will not gain entrance into the eternal kingdom 
of Jesus. Apparently they'll go elsewhere, some unnamed location that we probably can think of. And Peter sees this as so important, so foundational for us to grasp, he basically says, I'm going to continue to remind you about this as long as I have breath to speak. This is so important for your Christian life. As long as I'm alive, I'm going to keep reminding you of these things. Even though you know this, he might be generous here to the church, I don't know. Even though you know this, or you should know this, even though you may well be established in the truth, or you should be, I'm going to continue to remind you just in case you forget. Just in case you're prone to wander from time to time. I'm here to tell you again how you live matters. Who you live for matters. Faith without works is dead. It's just lip service. Now, even though Peter knows or he assumes that the church of his day, and therefore us reading it now, even though he, he assumes we all know this, he's not taking any chances. He's going to remind them again and again. It's so important to our faith. He says, I'm going to repeat this until I die. And there's this then kind of cryptic comment, as long as I'm in this body, which the Lord has shown me won't be long. Kind of an unusual thing to point out here. And we don't know whether, you know, maybe, maybe Jesus came to Peter in a dream or maybe he sent an angel to Peter and he said, uh, hey, March 13th, buddy, that's, uh, that's the day you're heading off. We don't know what Peter knows or, or how he knows it, but he clearly felt a sense of urgency to get this message out. And we do know that he died relatively soon, within a year or two maybe, after he wrote this letter. Now, church tradition says that Peter was killed by Nero. Tradition also says that he was, when he was told he was going to be crucified, he demanded to be crucified upside down. Remember earlier in his life, Peter had denied Jesus three times during Jesus' own trial and crucifixion. So Peter did not consider himself worthy to die in the same manner of Jesus Christ. So he demanded to be upside down. Now again, this is not found anywhere in the Bible. This, this, is, this is kind of an oral church history tradition that's been passed down. But what we do know is that Jesus and Peter had a little talk. This recorded in John 21. This may have provided some of the foreshadowing to Peter's death that he seems to know. And, and during this discussion in John 21, Jesus asked, Jesus asked Simon Peter three times in three different ways, Do you love me? And each time Peter answered, Lord, you know I do. And by the third time he was kind of annoyed. Lord, you keep asking me the same question. Yes, I love you. And every time Jesus said, Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep feed my sheep. And then Jesus told Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, 
Many believe, commentators believe, that this, this suggests that Jesus was telling Peter that, he, that maybe he was going to be a prisoner in his old age. Maybe he was going to be under house arrest of some kind. You know, the part about others are going to tell you where to go and, and what to do. And again, we know that he died in Rome during the reign of Nero, and Nero hated Christians, so that's a possibility. Some also suggest that the phrase, your arms stretched out, is a reference to crucifixion. But then it says, Jesus said this to show Peter how he would die and how Peter's death would glorify God. Now, the rest of that, kind of upside down, that all requires some speculation on our part or, or following church history. So beyond this, we, we just don't know much about Peter's death or even the, the, the last year or two of his life. But what is fascinating about this passage is that this conversation between Jesus and Peter took place after Jesus' death. So this is the resurrected Jesus telling Peter, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And the impact of having a recently deceased and now alive Jesus giving instruction to Peter apparently made quite an impact on the rest of his life. He was consumed with doing exactly that, feeding and tending the sheep. So it's not surprising to know that Peter, nearing the end of his life here, he takes yet another opportunity to call the church to action. He's feeding the sheep. To remind them again of what they probably already know, that a passive, sedentary, non-growing, non-Bible reading, so-called Christian may not be a Christ follower at all. They certainly won't be ready to withstand the trials and the, the pressures of the world. And so a spiritual fall may be imminent. If you're not prepared, there's a chance you're going to fall. So just as Peter says, we are to make every effort to grow in the spiritual qualities he laid out. He also says he's going to make every effort to help us remember these things. And he not only does it to help his fellow believers at the time, but he is fulfilling the calling placed on his life by Jesus. So Peter is an example of what he's calling us to do. He continues, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased... We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter's reminding the church, he's reminding anyone who reads this letter, really, that, that, that he's just carrying out the commandment of a resurrected Jesus. I'm doing what I was asked to do, to feed and tend the sheep. And at this point, he feels compelled to remind them of this fairly significant other experience he had of Jesus. I mean, talking with a resurrected Jesus and being told to tend the sheep, the sheep, that was pretty significant. But here's another big event in the life of Peter. And he's referring to is what is the transfiguration. But he starts with, I just want you guys to know, I'm not making this stuff up. I mean, there's a, there are a lot of false teachers running around telling an awful lot of lies about all kinds of things, even lies about Jesus, about what Jesus said and, and, and what he taught, but I'm not one of those guys. 
We did not follow cleverly devised myths. Now, when Peter uses the we here, I don't think this is the royal we. I think Peter's referring to the apostles in general, those who spent time, spent their life with Jesus, at least three years of it. He's referring to those true teachers of the gospel, of which he was one, as opposed to the false teachers, which he's about to take head on in chapter 2. So already he draws this line of demarcation between the teaching of the apostles and the false teachers, the fake teachers. He says, we aren't the ones making stuff up. We're, we're not following the cleverly devised myths. When we tell you about the power and the coming of Jesus, it's because we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. That's a big, important statement there. Majesty is kind of a, a hard word for us to pin down. I mean, when we tend to hear majesty, we probably think back of some old, you know, movie set in England or something where people say, yes, your majesty, no, your majesty. So it has this sense of kind of authority or royalty to it, which fits for Jesus. He's king, right? It kind of it makes sense. But the word majesty also has this, this larger, bigger scope. It means grandeur. In some places, it's translated as mighty power, which is more fitting of King Jesus. So in this sentence, Peter says, rather than making stuff up, we, the apostles, we've been telling you about the power and the coming of Jesus. And we know this firsthand because we were eyewitnesses to his great and mighty power, to his grandeur. Now that's a more appropriate description of a Messiah rather than just a king. And when Peter says we told you about his coming, that, that word there is, is perusia, which is often translated as coming or advent or presence. It's used 24 times in the New Testament, and 18 of those times it refers specifically to the coming of Jesus. Now remember, as Peter's writing this letter, Jesus has already been there. He has died, he has resurrected, and he has ascended. So when Peter uses the word here, he must be referring to the next coming of Jesus. When he comes again in person, future tense. We're telling you about the coming of Jesus because we've had this experience. We're eyewitnesses to his power and his majesty. Now, it's likely that Peter mentions the second coming of Jesus here because one of the popular heresies, one of the popular false teachings of the day was that, well, Jesus hasn't returned yet, so we're pretty sure he's not coming. So we're free to do whatever we want, however we want. We don't have to follow his guidelines. We don't have to follow any of these character traits. We can do whatever we want. And interestingly, we still hear that cleverly devised myth today. So Peter's committed to tending and feeding the sheep. And he says, nope, that's not right. That teaching is not right. He is coming. He said he was coming. He has unlimited power to make it happen. He will do what he said he would do. Let me share you a story to back that up. Let me tell you how I know this to be true. And Peter goes on. He says, when we, the apostles, we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. That, that's just almost kind of an Old Testament phrase meaning God. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven 
for we were with them on the mountain. Again, this is likely a reference to the transfiguration. This is an event that's included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him up on the mountain to pray. And Luke's gospel says that as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And suddenly, there were two other men with Jesus. Moses and Elijah. And they started having this conversation about Jesus' upcoming departure. His death, Peter James and John probably didn't know that then. But as, as Jesus and Moses and Elijah are having this discussion, it says, Then a cloud appeared and overshadowed the whole group. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son. Listen to him. And then the cloud broke. And what was left was Jesus and the three apostles. Peter was there. He was an eyewitness to this event. It seems to me this is an occurrence that you would be unlikely to forget. This would stick with you for a while. And it confirmed for Peter, James, and John, and for, for everyone that they would eventually tell later, that Jesus was who he said he was. That combined with his death and resurrection and ascension, that they were told here that something was going to happen to Jesus. He would be leaving but also that he would be coming back. So for Peter, James, and John, this was an absolute honor to be present, to be eyewitnesses of this event, to be able to share in the glory of God in this way. And now Peter is sharing this story with the church, not in a boastful kind of way. He, 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 the, the tone here is not, okay, this is what happened to me. Now, everybody else, you're, you're probably all slightly less ascended than I am. You're probably not enthusiastic, as enthusiastic spiritually as I am, but you need to listen to me because Jesus chose me for this special experience. No. He's telling the story as both a reminder to the faithful that Jesus lived, he died, and he is coming back. And he's also telling the story as a rebuttal to all the, the lies of the false teachers that were going around. Peter is committed to truth-telling. He's committed to reminding the saints of all of these things. And three times already, we've seen and heard and we've felt the passion of Peter. Verse 12, I intend to remind you. Verse 13, I think it's right to stir you up by way of reminder. Verse 15, I'm going to make every effort to help you recall these things. Even if the church knows these things, I'm going to tell you again anyway. He wants to be sure that we're without excuse. If a believer ends up falling away, it won't be because Peter didn't tell them. If the false teachers are trying to use that lie that, that Jesus is not coming back and therefore we should be allowed to do whatever we want, Peter says they're the ones making stuff up. Here's what I know. Here's what I experienced firsthand. What are you going to believe? These cleverly made-up stories and empty philosophies of, of guys who hope to line their pockets with your money? Or an eyewitness account of the glory and majesty of God? Which also happens to be in line with the Gospels and the Gospel accounts. 
which is where he goes next. He's not ready to conclude this argument, yet he's got a little more to add. He says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, only a couple of verses here, but man, these are loaded. Now, I mentioned already that, that Peter's going to hit the false prophets and the false teachers pretty hard starting next chapter. That's where Randy's going to pick up. So these last couple of verses we just looked at, coupled with these few verses, give us some idea of where he is heading. Because this obviously continues the idea started in the previous few verses. So Peter's argument is, in addition to my first-hand eyewitness account of the power and coming of Jesus, we also have the prophetic word, more fully confirmed. So Peter's argument is that he can personally testify to the glorious appearance of Christ and to the promise of his return, but the written and revealed word of God, the scriptures, the prophetic word he mentions here, God's word also testifies to the glorious appearance of Christ. That's confirmed. The prophetic word confirms Peter's experience. And in a lesser way, Peter's experience helps to confirm the scripture. Now, when he talks about the prophetic word, Peter's likely referring to, well, maybe referring to the Old Testament in its entirety, but he is certainly referring to those passages that, that talk specifically about a Messiah about a savior who is to come, who would ultimately defeat Satan, and who's going to usher in a new kingdom. And there are plenty scattered throughout the Old Testament. Here's just a couple. In Genesis 3, he, the seed of the woman, is Jesus, shall bruise your head, and you, the serpent, shall bruise his heel. Talking about this, this eventual return of Jesus. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, who's coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Many, many other prophecies and verses of a coming Messiah to be found in the prophetic word, the Old Testament. So Peter's building up this, this upcoming argument against false teachers, and he says, I have witnessed and I have experienced the, the majesty and the power of Jesus, but more importantly, scriptures confirm it. My experience is great. Wouldn't trade it for anything. But more importantly, Scripture confirms it. What I really, really like about the way this is written is that Peter is not suggesting that they, the, the first century Christians, or, or we as modern readers, he's not suggesting that we take his experience as proof of anything. Rather, Peter shares his experience, and then he points back to Scripture. He shows us how his personal experience, it, it comports with Scripture. It aligns with the prophetic word. Peter's experience lines up with Scripture. This was important for them, that these early readers, to hear. It's important for us to hear and to know. Many, many, many times... Many, many false teachers want us to believe them exclusively as they share about their experience. 
whether it's a voice from heaven, a visit to heaven, a new prophetic word, a new understanding of the old word, a new set of scriptures, we ought to believe their experience. And we shouldn't question it. Just believe it. For example, I'm not shy about naming names. For example, Muhammad was said to have numerous encounters with an angel. And the result was he received an entirely different prophetic word. A new holy, holy text that contradicts the scriptures of old. Joseph Smith had an experience with an angel that led him to find gold plates that contained an entirely different prophetic word. Not entirely different. There's large sections of Old Testament that are copied completely. But then there's new stuff thrown in there. So whether it's an experience that led to an entirely new holy book or just some new yet contradictory understanding of the Holy Bible, whatever it is, these prophets, these false teachers demand that we fall in line with them and their experience. Even if their experience or their prophetic word or their new understanding or whatever it is is not in line with Scripture, they have this new thing. Even when it deviates from God's own word, we are to trust them. They want us to believe that their experience trumps God's revealed word. By way of contrast, Peter points to the Bible to verify what he has experienced. He says, don't just take my word for it. Don't just rely on my experience. Don't, don't just trust my truth. Rely on the word of God. Which is why he goes on to say, in reference to the prophetic word, you would do well to pay attention. So doesn't really come across this way because there's so much here, but I think Peter's really kind of laying out a challenge for us. We have to know the true prophetic word of God so that we can more easily identify the false teachers, the false prophetic words. So we need to be regular readers of Scripture. We need to know it well enough so that we can tell the truth from a lie. And he describes the true word. He says, it is as a lamp shining in a dark place. Now, Peter's just referred us back to the prophetic word. It makes sense here that I think Peter probably has in, in mind here Psalm 119. And there might be others, but Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The word of God is a lamp that lights our way guides us through the darkness. And in context here, I think Peter's probably referring to the, the darkness of his own culture. Again, living in Nero's Rome, surrounded by all of these false teachers. He, he, he's likely referring to, to the darkness of lies and, and deceptions from the false teachers. They're causing disruption in the church. It may have felt, as Peter's writing this, that the whole world around him is a dark and heavy place to live. Gosh, what must that have felt like? But in the midst of this darkness, God's word is like a lamp shining in a dark place. We may feel like we're enveloped in darkness, but with faith in Christ, 
relying on the promises of God, we are clothed and blanketed in this small circle of light. We'll remain blanketed in this small circle of light until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. Now that seems like kind of an odd phrase. Oh, Peter's waxing poetic here, perhaps, or... Well, maybe, and there are some differences of opinion as to what he might mean by this, but most commentators believe that Peter is referring again to the second coming of Christ. When the day dawns and the morning star rises, I think Peter's giving another nod to the Old Testament. He's using language here that, that those early readers would have been familiar with if they knew their scriptures. Because there are several references in the Old Testament to the day of the Lord. Here's one in Amos 5. It says, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Hmm, that seems to contradict the Psalm 119 verse. Although the context in Amos 5 is quite a bit different. The context, when Amos writes, this is a warning to unbelievers. This is a warning to those who have turned their back on God. There is a coming day of the Lord, and if you're not following Christ, it's not going to look good for you. Things are bleak. Things are dark. So the second coming will be the opposite experience for the unbeliever. And the morning star, I think, is... That might sound familiar to us as we just went through Revelation. We find it in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, for example, where it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. These references, I think, make a pretty compelling argument that Peter here is talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. His experience at the transfiguration pointed to it, the scriptures repeatedly and overwhelmingly confirm it. And he lays all of this out because there are false teachers, remember, who are saying Jesus hasn't come back yet, so he's probably not going to. So Peter reminds us, and he encourages the church. He says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Now there are two schools of thought here regarding this verse. One is that this verse refers to how prophetic scriptures came about, uh, that, that true, genuine prophecies can't come from enacting on their own. They, they must come from God. They're, they're, they're delivered by the Holy Spirit. Others think that this, this highlighted verse refers to how prophetic scriptures are to be interpreted. They can only be understood by men. Oh, I'm sorry, they can't be understood by mere men. We have to have apostles for that. We have to have wise church leaders to help us understand. Now, the problem with the second argument is that it leaves the door open for a lot of false teachers who think we should listen to their version of things. Um, we've mentioned this many times before, this movement of the new apostolic reformation. That's part of their platform is we are the more spiritually enlightened. You should listen to us on how to understand and interpret scripture. So this second understanding seems flawed to me, especially in light of the next verse. It seems far more likely that Peter's talking about how the scripture got to be considered scripture in the first place. It wasn't the writings of random men who just said stuff, but it was the word of God, written down by men who were inspired, guided by, carried along by the spirit of God. 
2 Timothy 3.16 says much the same thing. All scripture is breathed out by the word of God. So Paul is here calling on the church to read, to study, to know the word of God. And he says, this is something of first importance. Know this. You need to understand these things. Knowing this, first of all, if you want to be able to tell the truth and lies, know the scriptures. If you want to be able to recognize false teachers, know the scriptures. If you want to walk in the light of truth in a dark culture, know the scriptures. And his advice to the church in these, this first chapter, before he moves into this next phase of false teachers, his advice to the church is startlingly relevant for us today. If we want to persevere as followers of Christ, if we want to endure and overcome, if we want to rejoice in the day of the Lord, then we need to put our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That was his starting point. Remember, supplement your faith. We better start with faith. Put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and then supplement, work to grow in virtue and knowledge and self-control and godliness and steadfastly and and steadfastness and brotherly love and affection. And this is best done by reading the scriptures. Not by relying on our own spiritual experiences. Those are great. It would be wonderful if everybody had some wonderful spiritual experience. But anybody that's been a Christian for more than a few years, you know that for every mountaintop moment, there is a long desert period. If we went lived exclusively by experience, most of us wouldn't make it. Experience and feelings alone will not help us remain strong and faithful. But being grounded in the word, knowing the promises of God, that he will forgive us when we ask, that he will never leave us or forsake us. He promises to come back for us and to deliver us to our eternal home. That provides hope. That helps us live in dark times. And not just live, but thrive. So that we can be light to others around us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this uh, inspired, God-breathed word um, that was delivered through the Holy Spirit to the writers. Um, we continue to be amazed, uh, and we, we've said this so many times over the last several years, we continue to be amazed at how relevant this is for us in our own day, our own time, and our own culture. Lord, so I pray that these words that Peter wrote uh, a long time ago find, uh, find a place in our hearts and our lives today, that we find ways to continue to grow in these traits and qualities that we continue to become more Christ-like and in that process, Lord, we know that the world is watching. May they see us not as, as uh, uh, hypocrites, although we are, but may they, may they see us as, as ones who are striving towards perfection, who are willing to admit our faults and failures, but who point back to our relationship with Jesus Christ as the author and perfecter of our faith, as the one who, who forgives us when we stumble. And Lord, may, may they see us grow in our faith. May they see us grow in our godliness as, as, as the world is watching, Lord. 
May they see us become better examples of followers of Christ. We thank you for your overwhelming patience and love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.